Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Hello, and welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name, once again, is Ryan Stackhouse, and through the magic of technology, we will soon be joined by Chris Osmar. We are historians of the Third Reich and experts on the secret state police, the Gestapo, or political police in the Nazi regime. Chris specializes in the relationship between the Gestapo and foreign workers who were used as slaves in Nazi Germany, while I look at the enforcement of laws governing critical opinion among average Germans. This week, we'll be reviewing Bernd A. Rusenik's Gesellschaft in der Katastrophe, Terror, Illegalität, Widerstand, Köln, 1944-45, which translates as Society and Catastrophe, Terror, Illegality, Resistance, Cologne, 1944-1945. Rusenik is an established name among historians of the Third Reich because of this book, which he wrote while he was a fellow at the Dusseldorf Bahn und Gedenkstätte, which is a memorial society set up for the victims of National Socialism in Dusseldorf, Germany. His more recent contributions, for which I am eternally grateful for my own research, have been to serve as a co-editor for several collections of the Dusseldorf Gestapo Situation Reports. These reports were compiled over the early 1930s and covered popular opinion, political attitudes, as well as threats, perceived and real, from a political policing and security point of view in the Rhineland. Society and Catastrophe, as I am reliably informed by senior scholars, was originally conceived as part of the official inquiry into the payment of reparations to the families of Germans who were executed by the Gestapo in late fall 1944. Rusenik was responsible for determining whether the actions of the so-called Ehrenfeld Group, which was composed in large part by members of the Edelweiss Pirates, who were youth gangs that in Cologne refused to participate in the Hitler Youth, whether their actions in the final months of the war constituted principled resistance to Hitler or criminal activity. This proved to be a sensitive topic, as you might expect, as the Edelweiss pirates generally, and the Ehrenfeld group specifically, had been held up as an example of principled resistance to Hitler, which was very important in the post-war era. It, it was important for people to have a narrative that they could hold up and say, look, not everybody agreed with National Socialism. Not everybody went along. Here we have this example, this group of young people who said no and did something about it. Unfortunately, as is so often the case in the myth-making surrounding public history narratives, not all was as it seemed. Without further ado, our discussion of Bernd A. Rusenik's Gesellschaft in der Katastrophe. So, Chris, what is the general thrust of the book? What is it about? Well, uh, what he's trying to figure out is what this interaction was between the police, and it's hard to even come up with a term for, uh, let's call them outlaw bands, uh, in Cologne, 
primarily between September and November of 1944. So fall 1944, I guess, I guess we should kind of give what the general background of what the study is. What's going on in the war at this time? Sure. So uh, the Allies have just finally reached the frontiers of the Red. The end is coming. Uh, the, this advance after the breakout from Normandy has been extremely rapid. And uh, there's some expectation that the war is going to be over very, very soon. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, last week when we were discussing Kershaw, you just had the Falaise Gap be closed for military historians who may be listening or people interested in military history. And you have a stream of people, soldiers and civilian personnel who were part of the larger military support mechanism in France and in the Low Countries streaming back into Germany. And it really looks like things are going to fall apart any day, more or less. Yes. And, and along with those soldiers and civilians, there are also Gestapo officers that are streaming back from the previously occupied territories as well. I, I think another important thing to keep in mind uh, when, when thinking about Cologne in 44, between September and November, is that the city's wrecked. Uh, that Cologne was the first city to face a thousand bomber raid Yeah, uh, way back in, in 1952. And it had been getting pummeled ever since. In the, the first Battle of the Ruhr, it had been a major target. Uh, and it was, again, at, at this point, in the second Battle of the Ruhr, a, a major target. So the bombing is constant. Uh, and, it, and it directly impacts some of the key figures in the book. And by constant, we're talking two major raids a week, I think it is, at some point that he brings that statistic out, right? And, you know, so the whole city has been leveled at this point. The cover of the book is quite remarkable. It shows the Munster in, in downtown Cologne by the train station, just the only thing standing amid this rubble with a, a corpse on, laying on the street. Yeah. Uh, and as a consequence, you know, a lot of the civilians have been evacuated. Uh, many were brought off to the, the Kinderlandvorschiffung, uh, and as the front approached, most of the rest of the civilians, with the exception of men between 16 and 60, have also been asked to leave the, the city, although not all did. Uh, the numbers are so quite what remarkable you there, is, too, though. You're talking about, I think the number that he quotes is like 700,000 residents of Cologne that drops over the course of the fall by March 1945, you only have 100,000 people left. And of that, it's something like 30,000 are foreign workers. So you're looking at roughly a quarter to a third of your population in the city, non-German. Yes. Uh, and many of the people who are left are very different than, than what they lived in before, without water, without electricity, uh, without intact shelter. And some are now living outside of society, outside of the law. Uh, and that's really the, the group that he's focused on, that, that group and the Gestapo. Yeah, this whole idea of sort of a parallel society. I, I think it's important background for people to know about this book specifically, that Rusenik was actually engaged to write it as part of, I believe it was reparation payments to the family of executed individuals. So the core... Yeah. The core of sort of the narrative revolves around these two executions that occur in the suburb of Ehrenfeld in Cologne. And the argument was that the people who were hung, extra, extrajudicial hangings, uh, basically state state ordered executions without any any trial, 
were in fact resistance fighters and therefore entitled to uh, reparations uh, under post-war law. And the question was whether their activities constituted principled resistance to the Nazi regime or whether it was more general criminality and survival. And so there, there, there is that sort of background question going on in this book that's important to keep yeah, in mind. Yeah, and that's, that's especially interesting because there's a financial incentive behind which interpretation you select. Um, that this, this argument that in part an effort to not give their families a reparations payment. And then there's also a question of uh, resistance as well. Yes, which is an important political theme in post-war Germany. The idea that it, it is important to have Germans who were engaged in principal resistance to Nazism to demonstrate that there was a, a domestic resistance movement to Hitler's policies. I, I think it's important to point out, though, that Rusenik is a well-respected and arm's-length researcher who <laughs> was engaged for this reason to perform this research. We just have this wonderful book as a result. So, Well, I mean, the research, the research question, what, what he's tr really trying to get at is, was this resistance? What was happening in the, the bombed-out buildings of Ehrenfeld? Principled resistance. And I think principle is, is a, a key word here. Uh, because he's he's trying to get at their motivations, why they were doing what they were doing. Uh, so were they were they criminals? Were they simply people that were trying to survive, or were they real resistors? Right, because it's different if you are fighting somebody because you are trying to stay alive, or you're trying to make ends meet. Or, whereas if you're fighting somebody because you fundamentally stand against the principles of what they stand for, or Nazism in this case. Uh, like whether or not they were actively trying to bring down the Nazi regime, whether they were attempting to ease the Allied entry into Germany, acting as a sort of, you know, fifth column from within, or whether they were in fact trying to survive themselves and hold out just until the Allies uh, arrived. So, and and the assumption is that there is a meaningful difference between these different categories. And, and I think there is, but it, it's worth at least examining that assumption, and we can do that. Uh, and also that there's the implied argument that for each person, uh, rather than maybe several different motivations that are involved. Right. So how would you characterize his thesis? What is, what is his argument? What is his findings from this question about whether the Ehrenfeld group, the so-called Edel, Edelweiss pirates, the the nonconformist youth and this larger group that they had put together in Ehrenfeld was in fact a resistance movement. Well, he certainly doesn't think that they're a resistance movement, but while he points out many, many instances of criminal activity by people in, in these really groups, uh, both earlier before the war uh, and during the war, he seems to kind of try and take a middle position between the, the and the resistance conclusion of uh, suggesting that they're just trying to survive. They're trying to hold out, uh, maybe escaping Cologne as, as the Allies approach, uh, but just trying to not get founded up by the Gestapo or sent off to work on the West Wall or sent into the military uh, or be executed for if they were in the military before for being a deserter, to try to survive. That, that is their primary. I think another one of his main arguments is that he definitely challenges the Gestapo narrative. It, what's interesting is that a lot of the post-war memory of the Ehrenfeld group 
is in fact based more or less taking the Gestapo files at their word that this was an organized resistance group, that it was principled opposition, explicitly political opposition to national socialism. And he essentially says this was not the case. These are, in fact, loosely associated groups. It's not a, there's the collusion that occurs is not one of, of sort of like an organized resistance. You have a bunch of different people acting in very different ways toward very different interests. And it is, in fact, the Gestapo who are describing them as one sort of monolithic resistance movement. And yes. Yeah, he's not, he doesn't buy that. So. Yeah, well, I, I guess this, this is a great entry point into talking about his sources because he does also very, very heavily reply, or rely on interrogations that they conduct. And his interpretation is that the, the Gestapo was just terrified. So they, they almost wanted to see it everywhere. And he, so he questions that interpretation. He does question it, but at the same time, he also provides excellent evidence for why, why that view could be taken quite rationally from the events that were going on at the time. He does an excellent job reconstructing the, the events that occur from late September into early October 1944 as sort of the West Front is collapsing and you have all of these people congregating in Cologne. I, I think another important point that it kind of in the background is that as the air raids are intensifying in Germany, a lot of the foreign workers are taking this opportunity to go delinquent, to to go to escape their camps or to leave their camps after bombing raids because the the camps are next to the factories. They don't want to be underneath the bombs being targeted. And they're trying to basically get somewhere where they can go underground and go into hiding until the allies arrive and they will be freed, right? So there is a, a lot of uncontrolled people who are supposed to be in very tightly controlled circumstances, you know, being held under armed guard in camps for as forced labor who are now moving around Cologne. And uh, I, I think it's quite interesting the way that he highlights the development of this sort of parallel society that, that emerges amid the ruins. Yeah, it, it really is a glimpse into this, this whole underground scene, which you, know, you don't have to classify it as resistance, but it, it certainly is a society apart. Um, that there are interactions between these different groups and they're finding a way to survive through sort of the th theft and the black market and they're interacting with each other. And and Germans and foreigners are not supposed to be interacting with each other uh, precisely because there's a fear that the Germans and push them towards uh, resistance, political activity, particularly communist activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's an important point as well, that in the eyes of the Gestapo, uh, again, half of these 30,000 foreign workers who are inside of Cologne are so-called Osterarbeiter, Eastern workers who are from the Soviet Union, I believe. Is that their st strict classification or Soviet territories? Yeah, from, from the occupied Soviet territories. They, they did uh, begin to that group a little bit earlier in 1944. Uh, so there, there had always been kind of a distinction between uh, Ukrainians and other Soviet citizens, uh, but they start creating different uh, badges for the different nationalities within the Soviet Union. But 
I question whether the people, like the officers in the Gestapo who had interacted with the foreign population for quite a long time now, uh, ever really accepted any, any differentiation underneath the larger rubric of Ostarbeiter. And I think the the other the really important thing in the eyes of Gestapo is that these so-called Eastern workers are just assumed to be Bolsheviks, assumed to be communists, and you know, in the worldview of National Socialism, therefore deadly enemies of the Nazis and deadly enemies of the German people, and a security threat just by nature of where in the world they came from, let alone racially inferior, quote unquote, as as Slavic peoples, right? So uh yeah. there there's a whole extra level of of fear toward this group that is just folded into the fact that goes beyond the fact that they're sort of uncontrolled foreigners moving around public space interacting with Germans that they're not supposed to be. Yeah, and those two things are interacting with each other as well. I mean there's already this attitude that the eastern workers are heavily influenced by communists that they've been trained to you know, hate Germany, hate Hitler, hate national socialism. Uh, but the fact that many of them have left their place of work and are now living outside of the camps where they've been confined for so long uh, is kind of another clue to the Gestapo that they, they really have embraced communism and that they're going to try and spread it. Yeah, the, all of a sudden you have a fifth column of foreign workers who are waiting in this huge, important city. And again, another point that comes out in the course of the book is how important Cologne was as a staging center to get supplies to the front and try and stabilize the situation as it was collapsing on the Western Front. You got these these supply depots and forts. Uh, it's a major rail hub in, in Western Germany and was the more or less the jumping off point for any any troops and resources that were moving westward to try and stabilize the front line against the allies. So you have a strategic city that has been totally leveled, that is being evacuated, that has this sort of criminal parallel society that has a whole bunch of people that you classify as a security threat ideologically uh, moving around within it. So it's sort of like it's the the witch's brew of things that make this the Gestapo uneasy, right? <laughs> and not to mention that, that the Allies are closing in um, mm -hmm. and can very well expect that they're going to be there soon and that they personally don't have a real future. Uh, so, you know, Russell doesn't get into this too much, but it's something to think about. Uh, that may well have radicalized them. Uh, the Gestapo. They may have wanted to get one last shot before it was too late. Right. Yeah, the whole final reckoning thing. Huh. I, I, I definitely want to talk about the chronology of events that lead up to the Ehrenfeld hangings, but I suppose we haven't really talked I mean, about that, the hangings. That is the bulk of the book. Is right. Him picking apart each individual that's involved, giving their backgrounds, their relationships, and and covering the, the string of events that lead up to it. I personally think that he does a pretty bad job of the chronology. It's all there. Yes. But, you know, Some assembly required. I had to draw charts. I had to take extensive notes going going back and forth to fill in gaps uh, because of the way that he structured the book. Whenever you encounter a new figure, he'll give you a little blurb about them usually and then go back to uh, what he was talking about. We'll go off on, on a tangent about that person for several pages before getting back to why he introduced them in the first place. Uh, but 
uh, all the same, his research is incredible. Uh, he has got so much detail about the the different groups and the different people that are involved here. So let, let's let's try and reconstruct it. All right. Who are our actors then? All right. So the the central group that he's most concerned with are the people that are living block on uh, Schoenseinstrasse. The Steinbrook the, group. The Ehrenfeld group, Steinbrook. so-called. Yes, exactly. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily led by Hans Steinbrook. Hans Steinbrook would be the father figure. He certainly takes on a leadership role. He's sort of this character who becomes a father figure to a lot of the uh, the so-called Edelweiss pirates, the, the, the youth groups or groups of young men who are basically avoiding forced labor on the West Wall, like the labor conscription to go out and dig trenches and things like that, who then sort of fall in with him and this, uh, this group. Right. Uh, and that was, as I understand it, it was an apartment complex, more or less. You know, you've got a bunch of people that are, are living together. It, eventually it gets destroyed by the bombing. Uh, but this is just a, a neighborhood, a, a small neighborhood community. You've also got, uh, and of course, the other figure that he hooks up with that is this Roland Laurent guy. Yes, and uh, Laurent is comes from another smaller group that's uh, based out of a a garden alcove on uh, Lucher Park. Uh, he's also a German. Uh, I guess let's let's talk about the groups first, and then we can can get into some of the individuals. We don't want to fall into the same trap that that Russell falls right. into of going off on tangents. Okay, but if we if we look at the Ehrenfeld group or the the so-called core of the Ehrenfeld group, because the study kind of basically explodes the idea that it is one monolithic group, we have Steinbrook and Laurent and the Edelweiss pirates forming one little core. Yes, no. I'm not I'm not entirely comfortable with that. Uh, once we get to the the Nazi hunt, the connections there. Uh, but the Schoenstein-Strasse group and the Blucher Park group is already running capers together, separate from each other, before they, they unite. Not initially in contact with each other, along with the Edelweiss pirates uh, and this very interesting figure, Mishka Finn. Uh, we'll, we'll get into him a little bit more in a second. Mm -hmm. uh, they raiding storehouses of goods, uh, most notably butter. Um, yeah. And then you've got this other, this other group, uh, the Laurent group, Laurent, uh, Roland Laurent and Hans B, who are living uh, out in the, the Garden Alcove on Boucher Park. Uh, and they, they operate independently from each other, and then uh, they will come together at this kind of crisis point and start acting together. Right. So we have, so you're classifying those as separate groups. Do you see the Edelweiss Pirates as part of Steinbrook's group? They're, they're running with Steinbrook. Uh, they are not that prominent, actually. Mm -hmm. But they're involved in uh, some of these capers, uh, both before and after Laurent and Steinbrook come together. So they're, they're there. In the sense that the, some of these kids from the Edelweiss Pirates just kind of liked hanging around the Schoensteinstrasse to yeah. Steinbrook. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so we've got Steinbrook, we've got Roland, we've got the Edelweiss Pirates. Mm -hmm. We also have the National Committee for Free Germany. Mm -hmm. They're sort of up here on the periphery of all of this and actually link together 
provide the link for the Gestapo in a couple of cases, but this is this essentially a, a loosely collected group of former communists or people who were members of the Communist Party who the National Committee being announced on Radio Moscow in 1943 and their goal being to essentially meet the allies with plans for kind of a post-fascist democratic Germany. And they're engaged in these sort of, you know, flyer actions, calling on people to throw down arms and to turn against the Nazis and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the kind of thing that you could point to and say, this is real principle resistance. Right. Exactly. But they're one group at this. On, I, I actually made a page here that is, uh, a bunch of circles with like the lines in between them connecting everybody together. And the NKFD is just kind of sitting here in the center of the page. There's about 12 other bubbles, right? Like, so, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, I'm staring at something kind of similar myself. Right now. Who else do we have then? So we got the NKFD, the Ehrenfeld or the, the Steinbrook group, the, uh, Roland Lawrence group, the Edelweiss pirates. Yeah, so those are the those are the Germans, uh, and then we've got the foreigners, the the Eastern workers. Uh, there is this uh, foreign worker camp uh, over by a, a scrapyard on the Wittendorfer Strasse. This Mishka Finn character who had a relationship with Steinbrook. The show over there is another. Well, it's it's an apartment on the the Immermannstrasse. Lived along with Germans. And they seem to have just gotten caught up in everything. Uh, the, you're talking about the they, people they were in the not Clayfish camp. Right. Right. Okay. So the Clayfish camp is the one that's attached to a watchmaker, is it not? Like it's a tiny, it's one of these smaller unguarded camps? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was a scrapyard. Okay. Perhaps. Perhaps I'm, I'm mixing, I'm mixing and matching here. Um, <laughs> pardon <laughs> It's very tangled and confused. <laughs> so yeah. I think At some point, an unguarded camp used by foreign workers who are on the lam as sort of an overnight location and organizing point becomes very important to this. That That's the other sort of nexus point where a lot of the actors are involved with each other. Yeah. Apartment that uh, gets raided and they find a... Uh, a foreign worker living there and a deserter working there uh, and a guy that's fencing this. Uh, Jansen and Mutter? There's one more set Rome, of Germans. He's uh, been, been fencing stolen goods. Right. Uh, that's the also- other important thing the Germans do is they serve as go-betweens for the Eastern workers. So the Germans can sell stolen goods and the foreign workers can steal them. Yeah. Okay, so those, those are the groups that are important, uh, as I see it. Um, maybe we should talk about the events that kind of drove the process. So, so just give me a quick, give me a rundown on all of them. All right. So, okay. From these three murders that happened in late September, and they interpret it as that, that there's, there is the Ehrenfeld gang that is perpetrating these murders. Uh, on the 20th September, there was a member of the Waffen SS that was shot. On the 26th of September, one of the foreign uh, the workers, police inspector, Pieper, is shot by uh, a foreign worker. And uh, I believe it was an Ostarbeiter that, 
that shot the Waffen SS member on, on the 20th of September. Uh, I, I and then put together a list here. So Kazemba is the one who shoots Schieffer on the 26th. And he's one of the guys who's associated with this camp. Then on the 28th, Laurent, uh, Laurent kills Suntingen, mm-hmm. who is, I believe, the political... He's both a police inspector and a political leader for the party. So an explicitly personal, political and important personality. Then on the yeah. 29th, one day later, again, that's when Mishka kills the SS man, Finn. The, the thief who is associated with this camp. And then two days later, on the 1st of October, or maybe three days later, I'm, I'm <laughs> revealing my ignorance of the months, um, <laughs> uh, two more foreign workers, I, I kill someone called Klockenberg? Who was he? I couldn't tell you. I, that, that is one that is missing from my list. Okay. And then on the 1st of October... 1944, Laurent and Steinbruch meet up and go on their so-called Nazi hunt. And they end up killing a Hitler Youth member and an SA man named Kochner. And then on the 3rd of October... Um, And and this is something that that Rusnik doesn't bring up, uh, but on the 20th of... or 25th of September, right in the midst of all this... Uh, Eisenhower broadcasts into Germany uh, that the time has come for the foreigners in Germany to rise up. And as this message is being broadcast, uh, they start airdropping sabotage supplies uh, into the country. Really? Yeah. That's kind of an important point. I just discovered this a couple of days ago, and I think it's really interesting. Uh, So So there's evidence on the the 5th of September. The fifth of twenty fifth of September. The twenty fifth of September. So the, so day, the day before, before you get this string of murders. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and no, the the night before that, there's this meeting in the Clayfish Camp. It sure sounds like organization because I I do think that. Uh, I I think that Rusinek may be a little bit too dismissive of the idea that there was real, real real resistance going on among or who? among the among the among foreign workers or among the Germans foreign workers. Mm. Yeah. In any case, I I do think that this uh, broadcast from Eisenhower. Well, in, in fact, there's a uh, Gestapo report that directly references it references it uh, not not the Cologne Gestapo uh, was somewhere a little bit further south uh, so but they they see it and they're thinking about it and that probably played into their interpretation of what was happening right yeah no doubt absolutely and then of course of course over the course of a week a week you have one two three four five six attacks and attempted murders and or murders of mm-hmm. a combination of po- explicitly political leadership figures. Yes. So, I, I mean, this of is... Of raids of these different places that are turning up weapons stashes. Yes. And stolen. So, actually, it's in the middle of all of these murders. It's on the 29th of September. So, we didn't, we didn't really mention the weapons cache. And I think that deserves a little attention here. Steinbrook's group 
has something like uh so I I couldn't tell you. Something something ridiculous. They've been stealing guns for stealing ant slash purchasing guns for right. quite a while. And they've been financing this with sort of their, their major butter heist that they pull off and then sell for 123,000 Reich mar- Reichsmarks at a time when the weekly pay is 50 Reichsmark a month or 50 Reichsmark a week. So a major chunk uh, of change. 50 Reichsmarks was the the rent on one of these apartments. Uh, he points to uh, Hans B's father, who was a, a middle class merchant. And was making something like fifty thousand a year, uh, so right. uh, this is several years worth of salary for for a middle class person. And uh, I think he he compares it to what a, a blue collar worker was making. It's something like seventy three years uh, salary uh, that they've made off of this butter heist, right? And and they put it all towards weapons. They just they buy a massive load of weapons with all of this, and it's not. It's not a little amount like this is enough to arm a small like, you know, enough to ar- this group? yeah, exactly. Like, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I, I think that one of the more interesting points that I've heard raised about the Ehrenfeld group by by Michael McConnell, in fact, was that essentially you're dealing with sort of the gun fetishism of being raised in a milita- militarized society. I mean, Steinbrook, Steinbrook definitely has this idea that he can ride the foreign workers to and sort of this chaos to become the next Hitler is actually his idea. Right. So. um, But it's not it's not just that they have they have explosives. And when things go bad for them, it's when they're raiding one of these camps to try and get explosives to go with their detonators that they have. Mm-hmm. So they have, but well, but they are doing that because they don't have enough explosives. Uh, well, they only have detonators up until they get caught. They get caught trying to get the explosives, or well, Laurent gets caught trying to get the explosives, and Steinbrook gets away and is caught a couple days later. Rusenik really needs a better timeline on this. <laughs> okay, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I, I think that that we've reconstructed really. The, it's really two weeks when most of the action happens uh, when you've got these, this string of murders and then uh, the raids of these different centers, uh, these, these different cells uh, and you have the two big executions. Mm-hmm. And those happen more or less a month after the arrests, but yeah, the well, 26th a, of September to the 3rd of October. The two, and, I, and I think it's interesting that, uh, or no, the 10th of November of November, when most of the the uh, Steinbrook group is hung, the executions are on ten November, twenty fifth of October. The foreign workers are hung, and ten November, the uh, the Germans are hung. He makes a side mention that the execution of the Germans is in fact delayed. And it looks like it might be communications issue in order to get permission from Kaltenbrunner because it's a, a so-called special treatment execution of Germans that requires an okay from the RSHA. And they haven't yet developed the, they haven't yet received the order from Himmler that they're allowed to act outside of a break of communications. Huh. Uh, so I think, I think but, that may explain the delay. Yeah. 
telling that because that same check didn't exist for the foreigners, they were able to to carry out the, the execution of the foreigners earlier. Most of them really were not as deeply involved uh, in outright murder as Steinbrook's group was. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the point that so let's let's play with this whole idea of like leaving aside Steinbrook and the arsenal for a moment. Uh, if we look at and it's I think the size is not something to downplay there in terms of making the threat to the Gestapo real. If we just look at uh, the connection between the Clayfish camp and all of these these different foreigners who are arming themselves, right? Like Jansen and Mutter, the um, who are former communists connected to the National Committee for Free Germany and are fences. They're, they're part of this group of Germans that have been kept behind in the city after the evacuations in order to run the factories. But they're, they're fencing stolen goods from foreign workers who are going out and breaking and entering into in, these houses and trying to salvage what remains to kind of survive uh, until the Allies arrive. They are selling their goods to Jansen, who is then arming them in return. Like they're getting pistols and rifles and weapons from all of this. <laughs> and then Mishka, who is also connected to the Clayfish camp, He's armed by Steinbrook, uh, in sort of as a result of one of their one of their agreements in a theft. So, mm -hmm. um, and as I understand, he was also living with Steinbrook. Mishka was. Yes, I see. Steinbrook, the day that 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 camp was raided, or that that I guess that that one wasn't a camp; that was a a shelter out in the backyard of the destroyed uh, apartment. Uh, yeah, but he was there the day that it was raided, and two of them escaped out the back window. Right. Oh, that's right. When they come to get, when they finally find the arsenal, so the there's some sort of like army patrol that gets a tip off about this arsenal, and then when they come to raid the apartment and they find these dozens and dozens of weapons, Laurent or Steinbrook is there with Mishka, and they literally jump out the back window. <laughs> yeah. So oh, um, I know we're kind of all over the place here, but uh, you know, even the the pro Rusinik on <laughs> this topic is all over the place. So I think that's all right. Uh, tell me, what do you think about this showing up on the 29th? It seems like a pretty strange coincidence. They get this tip off, and and it's an army patrol that does it, not not Gestapo or order police to put together a conspiracy theory for me. Uh, but uh, do you think there's a connection between the murders and the raid of Schoensteinstrasse? Or is it just a coincidence? I think that there's a higher presence in the area and that they're asking around. I don't think there's anything conspiratorial about the fact that you're going, if you have three murders occur in one suburb of political, explicitly political figures, that's the day after the political leader and police inspector Suntingen is murdered by Laurent, right? So yeah. it it is not surprising to me that authorities would be out in force and asking if you've seen anything strange. I mean they yeah. they've also they've also know some of the fences and are holding them under surveillance during this time. So Sonder Commando Kutter, who is the Gestapo commando that is assigned to unravel 
and investigate this supposed resistance ring does have knowledge at this point or has been watching some of these groups of sort of like or are getting reports about some of these groups like where eastern workers are coming and going which addresses may in fact be gathering points for uncontrolled foreign workers where they mm -hmm. may be fencing goods things like this so um but do you have any feeling any sense of the connection between the gestapo and zonderkommando kutter uh and and this army patrol are they no, the army patrol sort of materializes out of nowhere in, in yeah. senex's description and i i certainly i didn't see anything when i was working with that court file so i'm not really i don't know and uh, and we may just not be able to know uh, but I, I thought it was curious that that they do just kind of show up out of nowhere and, and i wasn't clear about whether there was communication going on there uh, or if they had acted on their own initiative i mean part of what's happening is as the Gestapo is decentralizing in response to this and as the military is sort of attempting to reassert control over the area and staging to move forces up to the front, it's I, I would say this is a natural outgrowth of attempting to reassert control over the city. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. And and after all, it is a lot of their stuff that's getting stolen. So They've they've got a real interest in putting an end to it. So I don't I don't think that there's anything out of the ordinary in that in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um and and I mean like the Germans that are left there are a combination I mean, some of the cases are just uh, of the people getting shot at are you know, one guy shows up, well, there are some foreign workers rummaging through a bombed out apartment and shouts at them and they take a pot chat on them and, you know, haul off, right? So um, the the sense of chaos that one gets of what it was like to live in Cologne at this time it sort of seems that that would be natural kind of you know stop somebody in the street check your papers are you supposed to be here are you a foreign worker have you seen anything suspicious in fact right like have you heard about these guys over mm -hmm. on Sunningstrasse right so but that that's interesting that the military was would be doing that kind of policing uh, and and i think maybe it points to well i don't think that i'm not that surprised by it because you're looking at you at this point cologne has is no longer a civilian city sure right at this point cologne is a staging area and it is a strategic rail hub on the way to the front and i you know the only reason that foreign workers are living here or you know using this the remains of the city hiding out in the rubble and that you know you've got all of these you know Edelweiss pirates and individuals like Laurent and and Steinbrücke hanging around is because there there is loot to be had right I, either mm -hmm. you're plundering the apartments or you are literally breaking into staging camps all over the city <laughs> Of you know, like I mean, they they drove off in a truck with a hundred and twenty three thousand Reichsmarks worth of butter, right? Like, and then they decided to go raid a different camp to see if they could get some some explosives. So, it's if that's the situation that you're looking at, it's not you know, I I, I don't think that it's uh, 
I don't think that it's that out of the ordinary when you have that much moving through the area that the you're going to have you're essentially you're in a staging area at that point you're not in a civilian city sure explain the involvement of the military in policing type tasks well the other thing to consider is and the thing is that this really comes over the course of and in response to the the sort of the Ehrenfeld hangings is there are combat engineers who are seconded to the Gestapo and Sonder Commander Kudder to go on raids and sort of ferret out these groups of foreign workers who are sort of formed gangs and are hiding out in places like the Clayfish Camp or in a basement of a bombed out building somewhere. And it's coming down to daily shootouts. I mean, the head of the Cologne Gestapo is killed in November in a shootout with a gang. Yeah. So... The military and the police at this point, you're essentially, they describe, I, I don't know if they describe it as a pacification campaign, but they are, they are by November and really by October waging a military campaign. It's, it's a counterinsurgency campaign within it, Cologne. It's Bannon They're, they're fighting a partisan war. Yeah. They're, that, yeah. That's, that's my interpretation. You, you have, you know, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, at one point, they're, they have combat engineers bl- sort of blasting a basement full of, uh, full of foreign workers because, I mean, they don't want to be caught. At that point, once they're armed, then any, any indication of organization is treated as a resistance group, right? So, and yeah. that, that equals yeah. death either way. So. Sure. Particularly after they fired the first shot, they're going to they're gonna fight to the end. But it doesn't make sense at all for them to surrender. Well, even if they're just found to be in possession of weapons, right? All right. Um, t- tell me what you know about this uh, murder by Mishka Finn on the 29th of September. It's on my list. I didn't <laughs> pick that up. Uh, Mishka kills con- an SS man. Huh. It's not always clear when the arrest of somebody leads to the discovery of another group as well. Like the major arrests appear to follow Laurent, and then from Laurent they get Steinbruch and then from Steinbruch and the other people, then they start to roll up Jansen, the NKFD and all these foreign, and from Jansen, they start to roll up the, the, the groups of foreign workers. Cause he was the fence for everybody. Huh. Although they, they get Kazemba early. Uh, after he shoots Schieffer, the, police inspector. Uh, so he, this is still in September uh, that they get Kazemba. Uh, and they also, the 28th of September raid of Immermannstrasse. Uh, so they actually picked up before they got at Steinbrook's group. Once they started interrogating them, the, the whole thing snowballs. So I don't I don't really know anything about the SS man one. I think the SS man, I think if I recall correctly, Mishka was that that's the story that I was telling you about, where he's in the, in the ruined apartment and takes a shot as he's retreating. I think he gut shots this guy. Yeah. Uh, as, as I understand it, uh, the Gestapo actually thought that Kazemba was Mishka Finn for a little while, uh, because they assumed that if you're gonna you know, murder a police officer that that you must be some 
kind of leader or organizer. Uh, so they, they equated the two. And, and I guess he gets away. Uh, and he has connections with – he's one of the figures that, that floats between groups, which I think is really interesting also. Mishka? Yeah, Mishka is the connection between Steinbrook and the Clayfish Camp. Mishka's the connection between... So the NKFD connects Jansen and Steinbrook. Mishka connects Steinbrook and the camp. And then you sort of have... Those are the three separate worlds. And Mishka kind of... Mishka and the NKFD bridge them. And Mishka also has a connection with this Oat fence Roman car, which connects him to the Amistraza apartment as well. Okay. So he's got he's got his his fingers in a lot of different pies. Well, he just also, he strikes me as the, the the archetypical Eastern worker trying to have a weapon in case he needs to shoot his way out of a situation, and otherwise trying to steal his way until the Allies arrive. I'm not a hundred percent confident that he's not a Gestapo invention because he's so ever present, um, and because we don't have an actual last name for him. He probably was real. Well, they, haven't, they haven't connected to both the camp. No, he was in a camp with Steinbrook. Like that's they met in an AEL. What, what is this but, conspiracy theorizing here? Well, okay, like let me put it this way: I'm not, I'm not convinced that he is as well connected as the Gestapo thinks he is, uh, because because he was close with Steinbrook and Steinbrook talked about him. Okay, I, I'll give you that 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 he was a real person, um, but. When he comes up in the interrogation of some of these other guys, it sounds like they've been asked about him yeah. and then eventually said, yeah, I knew that guy. So, Well, but I think that's, that's rather in, indicative of how the Gestapo views the entire – the fact that they refer to it as the Ehrenfeld group, right? Like mm-hmm. I, the so-called Ehrenfeld quote-unquote communist terror group, right, is uh, – you know, that's – they are seeing conspiracy and they are seeing collusion when really what you're looking at is a rather marvelously complex network of fences and deserters and, uh, and, and foreign workers and just a parallel criminal society trying to eke out a living until the end. I, I'm sold on Rusnik's core argument in that respect. I, th- I think that the Gestapo sees the Gestapo they themselves question over the course of the investigation whether they're actually dealing with an organized group. And they seem to come to the conclusion that we're not. We're actually dealing with a bunch of different groups that we need to be dealing with. But that the initial reaction to the murders, like when they begin rounding people up at the beginning of October, they're calling it the communist terror group. And by the time they're finished in interrogating everybody and begin executing them at the end of October and into early November, they're saying, oh, actually, we got this guy who ha- who was doing this. We got that guy who was doing that. We've got Jansen who was buying things and selling things to people. We got these NKFD guys who were trying to send out uh, flyers. I-, I mean, I think I don't think the Gestapo follows through on their own vision that they initially uh-huh. think mm-hmm. that is there. But they definitely initially think that they're looking at this monolithic thing and then they break it down and realize what they're dealing with. Yeah, because uh, I mean, but like they're 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 arresting they so many people. Of what they're up against, uh, you have to expect that this is going to 
conduct their interrogations. And it's going to shape the questions that they ask and the answers that they'll accept. Well, I think it definitely shapes the questions that they're asking. But I mean, they're, they also sweep up. I mean, um, Conrad Adenauer is in Brauweiler at one point. Brauweiler being mm-hmm. the prison that they use to... Sonder Commando Kutter, who is tasked to investigate organized resistance among foreign workers and is working on that i i think from spring 1944 onward the commando is created i'm not sure that's that's a question from michael mcconnell but uh they they're they're working prior to the fall crisis that we're dealing with that begins in september it's just that in at the end of september in that week period into the beginning of october there are all of there are all of these apparently politically motivated murders mm-hmm. that look like uh that that make it look like there's an organized uprising of the the national committee for free germany and their flyer action and steinbrook and his arsenal and these murders and these foreign workers who are on the lam and hiding out in this camp that all of a sudden yeah whoa they they've been organizing and this is the uprising right and then they arrest and and that's why Zonda Commando Kutter gets assigned with the case in the first place. Is that it? It looks like it's a organized political action that involves foreigners, and and you know to, because they're already predisposed to see it that way, and because they, they they're given this task for that reason, it makes sense that that's the first strand that they're going to follow. So I, I suppose I guess I don't understand your question. What is it that you are? Well, I'm just uh, the. Gestapo interrogations are such an important source. Uh, Rusnik is very conscious of questioning mentality in in conducting these interrogations as he goes about questioning whether this was real resistance. You have to keep in mind that uh, the interrogations themselves were probably affected by what the Gestapo was expecting to find. Well, certainly that's going to set the agenda of yeah. what the questions that are being asked. But I I mean, he quite explicitly points out that the Gestapo themselves begin to doubt their narrative. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I, I don't think that it's a, a huge problem, um, but I, I do think it's important to, to keep in mind from source uh, that I guess what I'm getting at is people may have admitted to knowing someone that they didn't actually know uh, because that's what the Gestapo wanted to find out. And because they wanted to tell the Gestapo what they wanted to hear. And that's something, I mean, in general, that Rusnik could have done a better job with is uh, thinking about the motivation and what they tell the Gestapo. For example, uh, Steinbruch talks about having for a position on the Gestapo. It's something that he, that he says under interrogation. His motivation for saying something like that would be as a mitigating factor, uh, as some way interrogator to empathize with him a little bit. Uh, and he probably actually did that. Uh, but this is this is one point that's been been taken from this as real evidence that uh, he was not he he tried to become a, a Gestapo officer after all, right? Uh, but given the situation that he found himself in, it would make sense for him to either fabricate that or to play up the importance of something like that. And that and that's just one case one one other case where. And more conscious of the the motivations of the people that are under interrogation. Mm-hmm. Well, but I mean, at the same time, Jansen and Mutter are both fences, right? Mm-hmm. 
they are involved in selling weapons, right? Like they find these, they find evidence of this when they go to the apartments, right? The clayfish camp was arming itself. Steinbrook did have an arsenal. Oh, right? sure. I mean, they, they did not invent this out of whole cloth. There's, there's no doubt about that. I, I do think that it was probably colored by the expectations of the Gestapo. Not not just their initial interpretation, but the actual sources themselves were probably covered by it. So what, the, what does that say? So I thought that Rusenik was quite actually quite uh, quite skeptical of the claims because you know Steinbrook is quoted as saying he wanted to blow up the ELDL house, the Gestapo station in the area. That's why they were stealing the explosives, right? He was but then it. he's quoted yeah. by a different source as like, well, we're going to get the arms, and then. When the foreign workers go and run amok, then we'll rise that disorder to power in the in the vacuum, right? Um, yeah, no, and and he's he is does a very good job of being skeptical in cases like that that advances argument, mm-hmm. but I don't think that he shows the same skepticism in places where it might not advance his argument. I'm not saying this is a fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. But I suppose my question is then really, what does it change? Because the question then, or perhaps it's a false dichotomy. Uh, but the question is whether this is principled resistance against national socialism, or whether this is a series of people struggling by various means to survive, and I'm you know, and <laughs> occasionally getting drunk and going out and just murdering people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in Steinbrook and Lawrence's case, so where it, it and the other ones the other shootings primarily being the result of being caught in the act of theft which is in that case an act of survival so mm-hmm. where where does that put his core claim because really i think that the skepticism your point seems to run counter to rusenik's conclusions because if he he is being skeptical and saying the interrogations are setting the the agenda or the perception of organized resistance, the expectation of organized resistance among foreign workers, Osterbeiter, who are considered communists, and these communist fences who are still hanging around, uh, and this guy who's engaged in these political murders must be some type of principled resistance to the state. And he's skeptical of that claim. And he goes into great depth into how most of the activity that they were engaged in was, in fact, survival or criminality that was about self-enrichment or, you know, again, survival. So I guess I don't understand. What I'm struggling to see is how this affects the argument, right? Because if you're saying that he's not skeptical of the expectation of resistance, I think that's exactly where he is most skeptical. And on that cliffhanger, we draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. The question provoked a lengthy debate about the nature of resistance, as well as the various motivations of different groups who were caught up in the Ehrenfeld hangings and the larger pacification campaign in Cologne. In addition to concluding our discussion of the motives that drove different population groups in the ruins of Cologne, we'll be discussing some of our own research about the lessons that the security services drew from the events of fall 1944 and how they integrated them into their future actions.
We hope you've enjoyed this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast and hope to see you next time to finish out the argument between me and Chris.